Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12 record the sad background to our psalm, Psalm 32. In a day when we hear of the moral failure of some spiritual leaders, it is interesting to recall that the man after God's own heart suffered a similar episode in his life. Adultery with Bathsheba was followed by the murder of Uriah, her husband, in an attempted cover-up by David. For a year, David's sin was a deep, dark secret. But what was a whispered secret on earth was an open scandal in heaven. As it says at the end of 2 Samuel 11, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God sent his prophet Nathan to confront David regarding his sin. In verse 7, Nathan, this is chapter 12 now, Nathan then said to David, You are the man, that is, you are the man who is guilty. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 is David's more full confession, written near the time of his repentance. In it, David in part promises God that he will teach transgressors the Lord's ways. Our text for today, Psalm 32, may well be his fulfillment of that vow. For after reflection upon that total experience, he writes Psalm 32, where we now turn in the Word of God. Psalm 32 is a didactic psalm, a teaching psalm, in which the Lord teaches us his ways. In it we find words of instruction from a man who learned the hard way, the price of refusing to repent of sin. I say he learned the lessons the hard way, but then haven't we all chosen that method of soul education at one time or another? The fact is that all of us sin. Sin is a common experience to us. 
the most godly among us are sometimes guilty of doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The real critical issue is our response when we sin. There really are just two possible responses. We can harden our hearts in stubbornness, or we can open our hearts in repentance. In this psalm, David teaches us about what happens with each of those responses. Stubbornness, he tells us, brings separation and misery. He tells us in this psalm that in the first place, stubbornness results in God's conviction. When we are stubborn about our sin and refuse to acknowledge it, God brings guilt to us. When sin is covered up, even physical and emotional consequences can occur. Now while it is certainly true that not all illness is caused by sin, we need to note that it can be caused by sin. Warren Worsby has written, Many people who are going to the doctors to take care of their symptoms ought to go to the Lord to take care of their sins. This does not mean that all sickness is caused by sin, but it does mean that unconfessed sin can cause sickness. David agrees with that. I want you to look at verses 3 and 4 again, which we read earlier. David says in these verses that his body was wasted and in pain during that period of months when he refused stubbornly to acknowledge his sin. When he rather tried to cover it over and hide it deceptively. He indicates that he grew old during those 12 months or so in which he was stubborn against God. He indicates to us in a poet's language that his spirit was depressed, that there was a heaviness about his whole life. His energy level was drained, his vitality gone. It was like a brook in a summer drought. It was no longer present. He was a man who had dried up from the inside out because he refused to deal with his sin. Stubbornness brings separation and misery. It results in conviction. But it also results in discipline. Verse 9. David says, Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. He suggests here that beyond the conviction that God brings to us when we are stubborn about sin, God also brings discipline. That is, God actively intervenes in our lives, bringing us into check. Just as a horse or a mule has to be brought under control so God puts bit and bridle into us and into our mouths and on our lives so that we can be brought under his control. This is God's discipline 
Have you ever thought about the difference between a horse and a mule? A horse is wild, impulsive, hard to tame. I remember when I was about uh, 13 years old, we got a new pony that had only slightly been broken. And it was my challenge, which I was excited about, to break that horse. And I did in time, before I was broken, fortunately. The first time I got on that horse, I did not put a saddle on. I simply put the bridle in his mouth and uh, jumped on his back. And we took off. And he bucked and ran and came right up to a barbed wire fence and stopped just like that. He waited about two seconds and with one leap jumped over the barbed wire fence and went on his way with me still on his back. Horses are impulsive. They have to be broken. Some of us are like that in our sin, too. But then there's the mule. The mule is different. The mule is slow. The mule is self-willed. The mule is hard to direct and to get moving. And some of us are like that when we are stubborn against God. The lesson that we see here is that stubbornness brings discipline from God, not only guilt and conviction. Refusal of God's gentler guidance brings the harsher bit and bridle to turn the sinner from his way. But then David tells us that when we are stubborn about our sin, it results in sorrows. Look at verse 10, the first part of the verse. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Guilt is a sorrow. Conviction is no fun. It can even affect us emotionally and physically, as David says. I can assure you from personal experience that the bit and bridle are not fun at all. They are sorrowful to wear. But many are the sorrows of the wicked. Beyond the sorrows we've talked about are the natural consequences of our sin. Let me tell you, David experienced sorrow upon sorrow throughout the rest of his life because of that year of stubbornness against God. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. There are the sorrows of broken relationships, fractured friendships. There are the sorrows of seeds that are sown that bear terrible fruit. I think of that parent who leaves the home forsakes the partner, perhaps to live with someone else. And not only is there the hurt to the spouse, but let me tell you something about the seeds that are sown in the lives of those children that experience what it means to be forsaken like that. I have a good friend who made that tragic decision. Although he came back to his wife, eventually his children have borne that sorrow. And his only son has now followed his father's footsteps in a broken marriage. Many are the sorrows of the wicked because of the seeds that are sown in the lives of others around us, even innocent people. Stubbornness with our sins brings misery and separation. David wants to write that in indelible letters on our hearts today. On the other hand, there is a happier lesson. It is the lesson about repentance. 
David knew what it was to be stubborn against God. But when he was confronted by Nathan, finally he repented. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. Repentance brings restoration and happiness. How blessed, he says, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David describes repentance fourfold in verse 5. In the first place he says that repentance is toward God. Repentance is directed toward God, against whom our sin also is primarily directed. When he wrote that great psalm of confession, Psalm 51, David said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done that which is wicked in your sight. Wait a minute, David. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, David? What about the child born, David? What about the nation that looked to you as an example, David? But David recognizes that all of these were also affected. Yet there is a higher lesson. And it is this, that when you and I sin, though others may be involved in it, the real focus of our sin is that it is against God. It is God's commandment regarding adultery, which David broke when he sinned with Bathsheba. It was God's commandment against murder that he transgressed when he arranged for the death of Uriah on the battlefield. It is God who gave value to life. It is God who honors purity. And David realized that his sin, while it was involving others around him, was ultimately directed against God. And so he repented to the Lord. I acknowledge my sin to thee, he says. He recounts his statement. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There are times when we have to go to others to make things right. To ask forgiveness for the offense that we have committed against them. But we have to realize that it begins by coming to God in confession. And repenting of our sin to Him. Repentance is toward God. Repentance involves an open, unguarded admission of what I've done. David is that way. He says, I acknowledge my sin. My iniquity I did not hide. I will confess my transgressions. David has now shunned deceit in which he had lived for a year. David now turns away from trying to hide his sin. And he draws back the covers so that God may see it. He opens the door of his heart... And he asked God to sweep clean his house. Here we see what repentance really is. It is an open and unguarded admission. Oh God, I have sinned in your sight. 
It's not named something else. The finger is not pointed in a different direction. David did not say, but if Bathsheba had only bathed in the house instead of on the rooftop. He said, I have sinned. I have sinned. We have not repented, folks, when we blame others. We have not repented when we call it a mistake or we seek some other way to excuse our actions. It is only when we pull back the covers and we say, God, here is the mess. And I have sinned against you. And then David tells us that repentance is a thorough confession of personal responsibility. My sin, he says, my iniquity. When he calls it his sin, he's talking about his own missing of the mark. That he has turned from the way that God had directed him. When he speaks of his own iniquity, he is using a word that refers to perversion or to crookedness in one's character, one's behavior. The word transgression deals with rebellion. It means to separate two parties. The idea is to go beyond the limits of what is allowed between the two. David went beyond the limits of what God allowed in his fellowship with David. He transgressed. David says, I bear full responsibility for it. That's what repentance is. And repentance is a desire for change in one's life. A desire for a complete break with what has gone on in the past. He talks about this briefly in Psalm 51 in these words. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David says, I want a new beginning, Lord. I am turning my back on where I've been and what I've done. I want to start again, a new beginning. That's what repentance is. Now, quite honestly... When we repent to God, we cannot say, God, I promise you, I will never do this again. I will never sin again. If we make that kind of promise, we're making a vow that we cannot keep. Because we will sin again. Perhaps not in the same way. But we will sin again. But our heart attitude must be one of saying, God, I am, I am starting over. And I no longer desire that. I want the ways that please you. Lord, teach me your ways. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not cheap. Repentance is not bubbling up a quick prayer to God and then it bursts and it's gone. But repentance is a deep, heartfelt turning to the Lord from where we've been and saying, God, I want a new direction in my life. That's how he describes repentance, and he encourages us to take the step. David does, and God does. David, in verses 6 through 9, talks about this. In verse 6, it's David himself speaking. He says, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. You see, it's the godly who will give heed to this exhortation. It is the ungodly who hardens his heart, who is stubborn. 
It is the godly man who, recognizing his sin, repents. And so David says, let everyone who is godly pray to thee when you can be found. David acknowledges an important truth here. When we realize we've sinned, we must repent quickly. Because God does not promise to indefinitely extend the period of grace. Seek the Lord while he may be found, says Isaiah. Call upon him while he is near. And so when I sense that conviction in my life, at that moment, what I need to do is to open my heart to God in repentance. David says, corrective discipline will not be required when we do this. Surely in the great flood of waters, they shall not reach him. The flood of waters, perhaps, is a poetic expression of troubles and tribulation that God sends to the one who does not repent. But when the godly man turns to the Lord, when he can be found and prays to him in repentance, then he avoids those troubled waters. He says, then God becomes a hiding place. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. For a year David had known only lamentation and dirges. He had no songs of deliverance in his life. He was captive by his own deceit and stubbornness. But now he says, Oh God, you have become my hiding place. Lord, you are my refuge. You are my shelter. You keep me from trouble. And you surround me with songs of deliverance now that I have repented. Aren't those encouraging words to you and to me? When we need to repent? Is your life filled with songs of deliverance today or with lamentation as David's was? Stubbornness brings misery and separation. Oh, but the joys, the joys of repentance... The joys of bowing low and bending the head. The joys of humility before God. And pulling back the covers and saying, God, here's what I've done. And God then sweeps it clean. He washes away the iniquity. He covers it over. And songs of deliverance erupt in the heart. Songs of praise to God. Then God seems to speak in verse 8. That seems to be the best understanding of this verse. As It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The same thrust as the previous verses here, actually. But God is promising his eye upon the one who repents. That is, his gracious care for the welfare of that soul that bows the knee and bends the head. But then he gives that warning that we've looked at already, the warning that if we do not repent and we remain stubborn, then we will be broken as though we were brute beasts. We are encouraged to repent by David and by God. And then we see what repentance produces. In verses 1 and 2, we are reminded that repentance produces restored fellowship in the first place. 
He says, when one repents, his transgression is forgiven. The sin is covered over. The Lord no longer imputes iniquity or guilt to that one. That is, it's no longer counted against him. Repentance actually does produce a free heart and a new beginning. The sense of cleansing. How long has it been since you've known that cleansing of God in your life? Repentance brings that. Oh, it's possible for you and for me to still feel guilty even after we've repented. Sometimes that guilt comes from our own selves. Psychologically, for some reason, we continue to make ourselves feel guilty after God has already forgiven. We ought to believe what God says here about forgiveness and covering and no longer counting it against us. Really enter into that and believe it and no longer point the finger at ourselves. God doesn't want us to make ourselves feel guilty. There are times, too, when false guilt comes from Satan. When even after we have confessed to the Lord and our sins are removed, Satan enters into the picture and begins to accuse us before God and accuse us to ourselves. And again, we don't have to listen to what he says. For he has no basis of accusation when God no longer counts sin against us. Restored fellowship is one of the results of repentance. The second one is found in verse 11, and that's joy. Restored joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, he says. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. To be upright in heart means that one has dealt honestly with his sin. It doesn't mean sinlessness, for we're all sinners. But the one who is upright in heart has been upfront about his sin. He's no longer pulling David's trick during that year. No longer trying to hide it. He brings it right up to God and repents of it. That is the upright man, and he is filled with joy. There is restored joy for the one who repents. And David in Psalm 51 gives us another result of repentance, and that is restored usefulness. I read earlier verse 11, Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. We need to understand that David wrote this a thousand years before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell every believer. In his time, the Holy Spirit came to only selected people to indwell them. He would come upon them to enable them to serve God in some special capacity. It's not a matter of salvation in verse 11. It's a matter of service. David is saying, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me in my service. In other words, he's saying, Lord, make me useful yet to your purposes. And again in verse 13, he says, Then when you have done this, I will teach transgressors thy way. Sinners will be converted to thee. The fact is that we are not very useful to God at all when we are stubborn about our sin. But when we are upfront about it and when we repent of it, then we are restored in our usefulness to God. We can still serve God. We can still be involved in teaching others. 
we can still see the fruit of sinners being converted to the Lord when we have acknowledged openly our sin. Just a couple of closing thoughts as we bring this message to a close. One thought is this. The longer I remain stubborn about my sin, the greater the natural consequences when I finally do repent. That seems to be a principle in God's Word. The longer I remain stubborn about my sin, the greater the natural consequences when I repent. When I repent, my guilt is gone, but God often allows the consequences to be carried out as a reminder to us of what we've done and as a lesson to others of the price of sin. The longer I refuse to repent, the longer I cause my heart to remain stubborn against God, the more consequences are going to accumulate so that when I do finally repent, there will be more of them to yet be fulfilled in my life. How wise then to repent soon, quickly. Then I notice too that the deeper I repent of my sin, the greater the deliverance Repentance cannot be done well superficially. Repentance must involve us deeply in our souls. The deeper we repent, the greater our deliverance. It may be that the reason some of us are yet struggling is that our repentance has not been very thorough. Someone has said, the less you spare yourself the more God will spare you. In other words, the idea is if I spare myself a deep repentance, then God is not obligated to spare me. But the less I spare myself in my repentance, the more God will then spare me later. The fact is that we all sin. I am a sinner, though redeemed, talking to a company of sinners, most of whom I trust are redeemed. But we are all sinners, whether redeemed or not. The critical issue is how we respond to our sin, whether it is stubbornness or it's repentance. If we respond with stubbornness, then we will receive misery and separation. If we respond in repentance then we will receive restoration and happiness. That's why David begins the psalm by saying, How very blessed in great multitude are the blessings of the man who has repented and whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. That verb covered is an interesting one. It means to fill in the hollow spots of something. So that as you fill in the hollow spots, they are covered. That's the thought. A lot of work has been done, thank the Lord, in this parking lot over here. As that was done, some huge machines were brought in to fill in some of the low spots and to take off the high spots. 
as those low spots were filled in, they were covered up, you see. The picture is that our, in our lives, sin is that which eats away inside of us and leaves hollow spots. But when we repent, God graciously begins to fill in those hollow spots so that they are covered. How would you respond today to what God is saying? Through David, the repentant one. Let's pray. Perhaps you've come to worship this morning and your life has been freshly swept clean by confession and repentance. But it may be that as you sit there and hear the word of God, He is dealing with you over some area of your life where there has been disobedience and you've been stubborn. And your vitality is drained. You're wasting away because of your refusal to repent. My friend, God desires for you today not to have to wear the bit and bridle. But while he may be found, that you might repent, so that then he might forgive your transgressions and fill in the hollow spots that sin has made. I'd like for us to just take a few seconds and allow you time to respond to the Lord. Will you repent today, now, at this moment? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now it may be that you need someone else to talk to. We have pastors who would be delighted to meet with you personally. In a few moments, when you complete your registration form, just mark on there that little box that says, I need to talk to someone. Your repentance may begin this morning in this hour, but it needs to be thoroughly finished, and you need somebody's help to help you sort out what that means, what that involves. Give us that privilege, won't you? Just before I close in prayer, I wonder if there's someone here or some several who would say by the uplifted hand, I am this morning a repentant one like David. God has dealt with me and there is cleansing going on in my life today. Thank God. I am a repentant one today. Would you lift your hand? I'd like to pray for you. Yes, God bless you. Many hands. Thank you. Now, is there someone here who would honestly say, I am a stubborn one. I'm not ready to repent, but I wish you would pray for me. My heart is hardened. 
and I am miserable, and I sense separation, please pray for me. Is there someone who would say that? God bless you. How I appreciate your honesty about that. Is there someone else? Just lift your hand and put it down. Quickly. Father in heaven, I pray for these who have lifted the hand for different needs, but who have responded to some extent to your Holy Spirit's working. I pray that you will bring that to full fruitfulness in their lives. And may all of us know the meaning of you as our shelter and our refuge. May we have songs of deliverance that would abound in our lives because we have dealt honestly with our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.